0: Here this morning, so good to see you all. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what God wants. What is it He wants from us? Um, Often, I thought about doing this, first of all, I I thought about doing this through interpretive dance, but Nathan said no. Um, (laughs) Didn't want that kind of counseling bill afterwards. Um, So, often when we struggle in relationships we struggle it's because of unmet expectations. When I first got married um, you know when you're you're first married you're finding out things about people you know you're figuring out okay what is it you know and there was this weird little thing we had in our, our marriage where I every time we had ice cream I'd say yeah let's my wife would say do you want some ice cream? I'd say sure and she'd stare at me and I'd be like Okay, and she's like, well, do you want to get it? And I said, I, I guess. And, and so I'd go and scoop up the ice cream and stuff. And next time, she said, do you want some ice cream? I said, yeah, that'd be great. And I'm waiting for her to serve it up. You no, know, nothing. She's just sitting there waiting. And so, well, eventually I found out that in her house growing up, her dad always served the ice cream. Her dad always scooped the ice cream. Because it was hard, and it was hard to get it out with a scoop and stuff, and her mom didn't like doing it. And so that was just something she was used to. And she was very disappointed that I didn't jump up and serve the ice cream. Unmet expectation, right? she didn't, But I didn't know what the expectation was. I didn't know what she wanted. Um, she was just staring at me, offering ice cream and then staring at me. I thought it was a little odd. All right? Um, I had expectations whenever my dad worked out in the yard, I'd go out and help him. I enjoyed it. I liked going out and working in the yard. I got very disappointed that my girls never came out and volunteered to help me work in the yard. And I expressed that to my wife one day, and she said, Well, have you asked them to come out and help you? No. They should just kind of know to come out and help me in the yard, kind of thing, with the yard work. Well, no. I had to ask them, and they still didn't come out, but I asked them. Um, So there were unmet expectations, and that caused stress in the relationship. It caused stress in the relationship. And I think we have sometimes that frustration with God. We don't know exactly what it is He wants. We're trying to do the right thing, but He seems absent or He's not responding and we're wondering what is it that I'm doing wrong? What is it that God wants me to do in this situation? And sometimes we just feel like we're going through the motions. In terms of our life of faith, we're just going through the motions. Israel had the same problem. They were frustrated because they didn't understand what God wanted from them. There were some unmet expectations. And so, as a result, there was tension in the relationship between God and Israel. There was tension. Imagine their surprise when God said, do you think you're frustrated? Well, I am frustrated as well. And I'm actually taking you to court. You're being sued. Surprise. God is suing you. I don't know if you've ever been sued or if you've ever had a summons to court or anything like that. Happened to me once. Postman come and say, I have something you have to sign for. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's weird. I wonder what that is. Open it up, and it's a report that I'm being sued for a car accident that I was in. Okay? Totally not my fault, of course, but, you know. Anyway, it all worked out. But imagine getting sued by God. That's what Israel's situation is. And we're going to be looking at this lawsuit in Micah chapter 6. I'm going to work through the passage and look at this lawsuit in Micah chapter six. All right, so let's go over verses one through five again. listen to this. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the, Is- let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he will contend with Israel. And he talks to the people more directly. Oh my people. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. And redeemed you from the house of slavery. And sent Before you, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And when we initially read that, it seems a little confusing. There's a lot there that we kind of need to unpack. And so... This is a courtroom. This is a courtroom setting, but it's unlike a courtroom we've ever been in before. Okay. All right. Who are the witnesses here? The mountains and the hills. Kind of odd witnesses, right? A little bit odd. These witnesses are the mountains and the hills. Okay. Now, why would mountains and hills be the witnesses? Well, they're the only ones that have been around for the long history of Israel. Long enough to know what's going on. They can testify to both the claims of the people and the claims of God. Who has been righteous? Who's been faithful? I think we all kind of know the answer to that already. All right. But this is also God's way of saying What you're in trouble for has been a long time coming. This isn't a new spur of the moment. Yesterday you ticked me off. Today I'm taking you to court. God is picking a legal fight with his people. They seem to have done to them that they had done everything by the book and now they're getting sued. All right, the word... The Lord has an indictment against his people. That's a lawsuit, a legal case. Some translations even translate it as lawsuit. You know this isn't going to end well for them. I have a colleague who's a great encourager. Whenever I tell him that I'm swamped, I'm overwhelmed, I've got so much work to do, and it just keeps coming, and of course there are problems then, you know. The toilet bowl cracks, water all over the bathroom. Grades are due. Students are freaking out. Okay, Nathan's wanting me to finish reading his dissertation. All right, and my colleague always looks at me and smiles and just says, "You're doomed." Okay, like I guess that he's an encourager. All right, this is the way Israel must have felt. Okay. You've got a court case in which God is taking you to court. You're an aunt. And the person that's got a beef with you is the kid with a magnifying glass. You're a little outmatched, right? And this is more specifically not just a lawsuit. It's a covenant lawsuit. Now, what is a covenant? Covenant... Is a formal agreement, right? Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. It's a formal agreement in which there are... There's a relationship, but there are duties that are required. There are things that must be settled. You have to determine who's going to scoop the ice cream. You have to determine which way the toilet paper hangs. You have to determine... Do you squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom and roll it up or just anywhere along the tube? All right. These things contribute to the harmony of the relationship. But this is talking about something called a suzerain vassal covenant. Okay. One way to think about this is the king and a knight. All right. A little closer to our experience, a king and a knight, where the knight owes fealty to the king. The king can require the knight to do service. All right, and then the king offers protection to the knight as well. We think about that that way. That is perhaps a little closer to our experience. A fancy term for it, suzerain-vassal treaty. These guys, Israel is the vassal. God is the king, the suzerain. Okay? And the expectation is that there would be obedience on both sides. And so what we have here is a broken relationship in which the vassal, Israel has not been exactly obedient. And if we think about it in terms of marriage, divorce is on the table as an option. Think about that. God and his people. Divorce is on the table. How would you feel if God said you know, you're this close to losing your relationship with me. Terrifying, right? The contract's been violated, the relationship has been broken. And even though it's a contract, it's a deeply relational contract like marriage. In verse 3, we see that... God lets his people go to bat first. Court, we're going to present evidence. We're going to go back and forth. And God says, all right, I'll let you go first. I'm bringing the lawsuit, but I'm going to let you explain why things are bad, why there's unmet expectations, why there's tension between us. I'm going to let you go first. And he asked the people, what have I done to you? Is there a reason you have not obeyed? Is there a reason you have not responded in love to me? Have I done something to deserve your rebellion, your coldness? You're going through the motions. How have I wearied you? You ever been wearied by a significant other in your life? All right, maybe a professor. So, yeah, I teed that up for you. Yeah, yeah, so, all right. Have you ever been weird and you're just like, oh, I'm so, I'm so tired of this relationship. I'm tired of struggle. And God is asking, Have I done something that caused that in you? God asking that of his people have I wearied you are you tired of me God is hurt God is hurt he is invested in this relationship with the people and he is hurt he doesn't feel like they're invested with him it's sort of like owning a cat. Anybody have a cat or a pet? Okay. have a couple cats at home. I love the little beast, but he's useless. Okay. Relatively speaking, I do a lot for that cat. And he appreciates it about this much. There's no sense of gratefulness or loving me back for the money I spend on his food. That way I have to clean up after him. Okay. This is in part due to the nature of the cat, right? The nature of the cat is such that it can't really achieve the level of affection I wish it could. Okay. Dogs will be a little more grateful. Yet people can love God and what people often fail to realize is that humanity with their lack of love response to God hurt God a long time before the cross. God hurts because of his people. The mystery of a holy all powerful God exposing himself to hurt through loving his people. And Israel's response earth shattering silence. They don't answer, at least not in this passage. Shoulder shrug. Guess you haven't. four through five, we get God's evidence. God's evidence. There's a Hebrew word play here between verses three and four so that the words weary you and brought you out sound very close, very familiar. They have similar sound in the original language. Kind of like, don't bring me down, Bruce. In other words, God is saying, I haven't really drug you down. I brought you up. The contrast. I brought you up. So, how have I dragged you down? I haven't. I brought you up. He gives four ways in which he has saved them, in which he has provided for them. Right. First, he delivered them from slavery to freedom. from slavery to freedom. If you know the story of Exodus and all that was involved there and God showing his power, and one thing that's interesting is if you read through the plagues of the Exodus and what we often think about, we think about, oh, well, it's all these amazing signs. Yes, that's part of it. And maybe you've heard it said that it's defeating the different gods of Egypt. That's part of it too. But the thing that's emphasized in the story itself that's kind of cool As it keeps saying, and they will know there is a God to Israel. And they will know that Israel has a God. Israel will know they have a God. It's this knowledge. And knowledge in the Bible isn't just head knowledge. We think about it, we think of knowledge, we think about I know something. I know facts. I know data. It's not really what it means in the Bible. It means, oh yeah, I know him. He's a good guy. I have some level of knowledge that indicates some level of relationship. And what Israel learned in the Egyptian plagues and what they, in the plagues with Egypt and what they learned through that process was that God is a God who saves them and God is a God who judges sin. Two aspects of his character that are crazy That they're the two sides of one coin. Judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. And now Israel is on the side of judgment. That which they witness happening to Egypt. They're in danger of getting on themselves. He brought them through the Red Sea. This mighty power of dividing the sea and bringing them across. All these physical ideas of salvation Hmm. brought them out of the house of slavery. In the wilderness, he provided food for them. Another little amazing story. This is all meant in Micah to bring this back to their mind. It could be fast-forwarding all through this this background. Surrounded by a lot of Harry Potter stuff here. I don't know if anybody's Harry Potter fans, but when you get to the end and you get to the last book, you're remembering everything that came before. Our Lord of the Rings, you're remembering everything that came before and how that's coming into this climax. That's what Mike is doing here. He's bringing all this forward for Israel. Okay. And when they're in the wilderness and they're being fed with this bread called, what is it? What manna means is, what is it? What's it, Bread. we've got this little story there where we see part of the problem that Israel had is trusting God because he tells them go out, go out and get what you need for food for the day don't get extra they go out and what do they do? they get extra they try to hedge their bets, they try to control it and it rots but they do this every day and God says nothing God says, day six, get extra this time. It won't rot. But don't go out looking for it on day seven. They go out, they get extra. It doesn't rot. What do they do? Any guesses? <laughs> they go out on the Sabbath looking for food. And at that point, God says, how long will it take this people Trust me, how long will it take them to really have faith in what I'm telling them? To trust me completely. God is seeking that kind of deep level trust and faith that God is as good as his word. And Israel struggles with that every single time. Okay? And he gave them leaders. He gave them leaders. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. They weren't perfect. It wasn't a perfect situation. They got frustrated with Moses. Moses got frustrated with them. Moses had to intercede for them a couple of times. But God didn't leave them as orphans. He provided for them in terms of their leaders. And so he goes on and says, Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Now, if you don't know the story, it seems like a confusing little statement. And when the prophets are talking, one of the things they do is they bring forward these stories with these little statements. It's meant to bring the whole story into focus. Okay? It's kind of like I could say, I haven't felt that way since 9-11. I can issue that little statement, and those of you that have experienced 9-11, or even just heard about it, have a sense of everything that came into play with that, Right? the way the perspective of the United States of America shifted on that day. The sense of loss, the sense of fear, the sense of shock. I can bring all that forward by just telling you I haven't felt that way since 9-11. Right? That's what they're doing here in this passage. It says, look, I provided for you These leaders I provided for you getting you out of Egypt. And I provided for you in terms of Balak, king of Moab, and Balaam, son of Baor. So what's that story? Well, that's the story of the talking donkey, right? The story of the talking donkey. But there's more to it. It's a pretty amazing story, really. You think about it because, all right, Balak hires Balaam who's this prophet this wizard this seer who can cast curses and blessings on people and he says I want you to curse Israel I'm, I'm afraid of Israel you've got this massive horde of people going through the wilderness and he says, I'm afraid of Israel I don't know if we can handle him he has the same basic fear that Pharaoh did and I don't know if we can handle him or not so maybe curse them Cause them to get into a car accident, so to speak. Reduce their numbers. All right. Balaam couldn't do it, right? He asked God even for permission, and God said, no. Right. Balaam came back and said, I'll offer you even more money. And God said, fine, do it. But every time he tried to curse Israel, it came out as a blessing. It came out as a blessing. Okay? Israel will be remembering this. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story. Because a little further on in the book of Numbers, past this episode, the Israelites start having illicit relations with Moabite women and worshiping their gods. And God sends a plague. On the people for rejecting him for hurting him for being disobedient and so you see this and you go okay what's going on there and it says a little further it says this is something that Balaam devised so what happened to Israel there when the king of Moab tries to curse Israel he can't do it God protects them and so Balaam says, I know. We'll get Israel to curse themselves. We'll tempt them to abandon their God and tap into that element of judgment that comes upon sin. And that's what he did. And Israel found out that they need not fear any outside threat. What they needed to fear was their own tendency to leave and abandon this God they loved. Theoretically loved. Their own tendency towards sin was the greatest threat on Israel's existence. What caused Adam and Eve to get ejected from the garden to get a death sentence? Their own tendency to reject God. To seek Him. Independence from God, to seek equivalency with God. Okay. You could always just say that the lesson of that story is if God can use a talking donkey, he can use me. But there's this element that he's bringing forward all this stuff, and it's just amazing. You've got to pull all these big stories, and he can do it with just this little phrase. And I gave them a promised land to dwell in. What happened from Shittim to Gilgal? Well, what's Shittim to Gilgal? Shittim's on one side of the Jordan River, Gilgal's on the other. So this is referring them crossing the Jordan, starting to come into the promised land. And what happened there? Well, at Gilgal, they once again disobeyed. They once again disobeyed and they didn't listen to God. And after a little while, an angel came from Gilgal to a place called Boheme and said, look, I'm not going with you anymore. You're on your own for a time because you have rejected God. And what's the whole purpose of a land anyway? Why would God give them a land? Do they just need some place to get their mail? No. How is the land usually described? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a Garden of Eden take two. What was the purpose of Garden of Eden? The purpose of the Garden of Eden, the reason it was made that everything's built up, and then he puts Adam and Eve in there so they can fellowship with God. Everything they need is provided for. They can Focus on that relationship with God. The Garden of Eden is a limited restoration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. The land of Canaan, the promised land, was a limited restoration of the Garden of Eden. It's all these things God has given them. And there's a reminder then of this as they go into this land, this Shittim to Gilgal. There's a reminder of the original covenant agreement they made. Because where this took place is if we look at Joshua, if you turn to Joshua 24, if you have a Bible, turn to Joshua 24, verse 14 through 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, a.k.a. Canaanites. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jump down to verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, no we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, yeah, we're witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve. In his voice, we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. You signed the contract. Generations ago, yes, but you're still beholden. Okay. All right. What is the purpose of all these reminders, of all these reminders, what's the purpose? Into verse five, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord, the saving acts of the Lord. not random acts of kindness, but acts rooted in fostering an ongoing personal relationship. Sometimes we don't think the Old Testament has that, but it does. God was invested in the relationship and he wanted the people to stop being like cats. Recognize what I'm giving you. Recognize who I am, how much I love you, and love me back. Obedience that comes from love. Now we get to Israel's defense, and it just gets worse. Verses 6 and 7, Israel's legal defense. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Huh. Sounds like they're ready to give. Israel's responding. They know they've been called on the carpet. They are a deer in the headlights, and they need to do something fast, or they will be roadkill. It's like getting pulled over for a ticket. The initial response is to negotiate. How much do you know, officer, about exactly how much I was going, the fact that maybe I didn't have my seatbelt on until you just came up? First, got to figure out how much you know and what it is you're going to give me a ticket for. Then I'm going to try to negotiate and figure out what's the minimal I can get away with in terms of a fine... Israel's negotiating as if they got pulled over for a ticket. God's talking about divorce. The people want to know, what does God want? What's your expectations that we haven't met? What does it take to settle this out of court? So, you caught us. All right. I know. We'll go to sacrifices. You like sacrifices. Gods like sacrifices, right? Let's look at the sacrifices here. Okay. And here it helps to be a little familiar with Leviticus, you know that book where read through the Bible and year plans go to die. The point of sacrifices was ultimately fellowship. There are five main sacrifices listed in the book of Leviticus. Okay, two of them deal with guilt and sin. The other three deal with fellowship with God. We're conditioned; we tend to think about sacrifices as being all about sin and guilt, right? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we have to remember, even with Jesus, in terms of what he did on the cross, that wasn't the end, was it? There was resurrection. There was restoration there was renewal. Okay? It was so that there could be fellowship, that there could be a loving relationship with God, that the sacrifice happened. And afterwards, Jesus had a meal with the disciples. So first, they offer quality. All right. Shall they come before him with burnt offerings, with calves, A year old. They offer quality. Okay, first year calves were a precious sacrifice and an expensive one. Okay, didn't necessarily have a guarantee of having more calves. I'm gonna give you the best, God. You'll like that. Maybe that's what God wants. Then they try quantity. offering amounts that would make any god the talk of the heavenly water cooler. 10,000 rivers of oil. Thousands of rams. Solomon offered that sort of sacrifice. Maybe that's what impresses God. Maybe we've just not given enough. Finally, they offer something that is sinister the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. They're offering their children as sacrifices. What does that tell us? Quite a bit. This is something that normally would have been offered to a god named Molech, who other peoples nearby them worshipped. The fact that they even suggest this illustrates the real problem they have no idea what God really wants and they really don't know who God is or they wouldn't have offered such a thing they've grown so far apart from God that they don't know who he is or what he wants after getting a ticket you may start to notice ads for lawyers that say they can get you out of that ticket Your interest is piqued. What can I do to get out of this? If it's an argument with your spouse, you might say something just to end the argument. You aren't interested in fixing anything. You just want the get-out-of-jail-free card. Washing the dishes to get your spouse to stop nagging you. Mother Teresa said, You don't clean the plate because... It's dirty. You don't clean the plate because somebody asked you to. You clean the plate because you love the person that's going to use it next. So you may end up doing the right thing, but only for selfish reasons. And this is what we see with God's people. What exactly will it take to get what we want? They're trying to manipulate God. Miss the larger issue of relationship altogether. And now we come to the clincher. What is it that God wants? Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What God wants is described. In many ways, it's actually harder to do than the offerings listed above. With the exception of the firstborn, of course. Do justice. Do justice. This is the lowest common denominator. Okay? To do justice is to do what's fair and good. Law-abiding behavior. You give the cashier a 10 and she gives you changes if you gave her a 20. You do the right thing. Say, no, no, I give you a 10. Justice dictates that you do what is right. And you do not take advantage of others. But this itself is not enough. And this list goes from lesser to greater. Love mercy or kindness, depending on your translation. Mercy includes justice, but it goes beyond it. Mercy or loving kindness means that when your neighbors complain about your yard and ask you to rake it, you rake theirs too. Given the cloak, as Jesus terms means considering others before yourself. This is feeding your cat even when it's a jerk. Okay? Which is a lot of the time if you have a cat. Self-sacrifice for the good of others. This is the Good Samaritan. This is Ruth in the Old Testament. The Good Samaritan, when he took care of someone that by all rights would have been his enemy, it, not only did he care for him... It cost him to do so. An investment he would not get back. It cost him money, it cost him time, it cost him. This is what Jesus did in every aspect of his life. And then finally, walk humbly with your God. This is an idiom meaning do life together. It means having a relationship with God. To have a relationship with God includes both doing justice and loving, mercy, kindness. These are the things God himself demonstrated toward Israel. This walking with God includes being fair and responding in love towards others. It's a relationship with both a horizontal and vertical aspect to it. So here in verse 8, we see... It's not what God wants, but who he wants. Who he wants. He wants us. This doesn't mean that the sacrifices were wrong, but rather God always examines the giver before the gift. So you've been wondering what God's will is and what he wants from you. Or are you trying to be good, just trying to get out of the ticket? Are you giving your time and money to church and helping others? Wondering why the relationship with God still feels dry? must ask ourselves, are we trying to manipulate God with all that we are doing and giving? Are we trying to give God what he wants instead of who he wants? Jesus expressed the same basic message as that of Micah. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he got that from the Old Testament. So will you commit to doing the right thing because it is what Jesus has called you to do? Will you commit to putting others first even if it costs you to do so? Will you turn the other cheek and sacrifice your own interests because Jesus told us to do this and modeled it himself? And we have a relationship with him. Will you, finally, will you commit yourself fully to a relationship with Jesus? Will you let that relationship be the driving force and motivation and love and everything you do? God and Jesus have called us to do no less. Will you commit to it? Will you give God who he wants?